Turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. And while you're turning, uh, I, I want to just share with you a little bit of what God is doing in our life and uh, what our uh, ultimate plans are. When uh, Marie and I first started uh, uh, dating and talking and got to realize we're going to uh, be married, uh, we started talking about the possibility of settling or retiring, not, not retiring, refiring in the Philippines. And so I have made two trips over there. And the last time I was there, I asked the Lord to show me, to give me some indication of whether he wanted me there or not, wanted us there. And uh, so we went up in the mountains of, near, near Lagawe, which is about eight hour drive north of Manila, and uh, had a conference there. Uh, about um, 100, 125 pastors and wives and, and, and the church and then had a conference for about 100, 400 young people in another area of the Philippines. And the more I was there, the more I fell in love with the Philippine people. And I, well, you know I love the Philippine people. I married one of them, but I brought her home. But uh, as, uh, as I began to pray and uh, ask God, all right, now, uh, I'm 67 years old and you're not supposed to be doing things like this at 67. You're supposed to be settling down. And uh, I have settled down uh, a lot, uh, but, but in that regard, I, I just felt like uh, I just couldn't get over that impression. So I was in, um, in the missionary house at Long Beach where I was preaching, and I came across the verse in Psalm 139. Now, you understand the Philippines is an island way across. The, it's about a 20-hour dri uh, flight drive. <laughs> No, it would be about a 20-minute drive. That would be the end of that drive. You know, but uh, I came across this verse. If I take the wings of the morning and I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there thy hand shall hold me and thy right hand shall lead me. And I said, okay, Lord, uh, we'll do it. So I ask your prayers because uh, in about a year and a half or two years, uh, because of immigration and, and, and the laws that we're dealing with. Our plans are to go back to the Philippines and work in the Bible colleges over there and train uh, the young pastors in discipleship and counseling and then also to act as a liaison between the Bible colleges, about 20 of which I'm aware of, and American pastors who could come over and spend a week teaching a block course as a ministry from their local church. So pray about that. We'll continue our counseling ministry and, and the writing ministry, the radio ministry I could do from there. Uh, even uh, I'm praying about uh, webinars and doing couples conferences by internet from the Philippines. I was praying about that one day and... Uh, I had no idea what to go, and I sat on a plane next to a woman in Chicago. We were leaving from Chicago. In fact, I had prayed that day that God would, you know, open some doors. And uh, we got to talk, and I said, well, what, what were you doing in Chicago? She said, oh, I'm here to teach a seminar to executives on how to have webinars. Well, we had an interesting conversation. But you pray about these things, and, uh, and then... And possibly even the possibility of your church supporting us financially. So uh, we'll be talking more to the pastor about that. Now, this morning I want to bring a message that 
uh, I have grown burdened for over even this weekend. It's, uh, you know, it's always a, an exciting thing when you can step in the pulpit and you know that you know that you know that this is what God wants you to preach on. Well, I have that certainty today. And I have a burden on my heart. And I want to share this with you. And I, I pray you will open your heart to the Word of God and to the Holy Spirit of God. That you might benefit wholly uh, from what He has to say through His Word. We're going to look at one verse in Colossians uh, chapter 3 and verse 13. It says, Forbearing one another and forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Now, Father in heaven, I pray, Lord, that you would be with us today. I pray you would give me strength and utterance and knowledge and boldness. I pray that you would magnify the word, glorify yourself, exalt the Lord Jesus, empower this message by the Spirit, and may it truly be a life-changing time for all of us today. May we see in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit, that we so desperately need in our own hearts, in our own lives, in our own homes. I just ask that you would now open the Word to us and open our hearts to the Word in Christ's name we pray, amen. Some years ago, a couple came to me for counseling, and uh, I knew right away that this girl needed to forgive him. He, the husband, had been guilty of adultery. And so as I uh, counseled the wife, I said to her, you need to forgive him. What she said to me, I have never forgotten, and it struck deep within my heart, and it struck conviction into my spirit because she said, Brother Benny, I know I need to forgive him, but how do I forgive him? And I realized that sometimes, you know, between where we should be and where we are, there is a great distance. You see, Christ is the solution. We know that. Christ is the answer. Be not corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. But from where you are to where he is, the devil is going to do everything he can to keep you from getting there. And part of that is ignorance. So when she said to me, Brother Benny, how do I forgive? I prayed the counselor's prayer. Lord, what in the world I tell this woman? Now, I pray that a lot. You would be surprised. It's not as bad as the soul winner's prayer. You know, Lord, please don't let anybody be home. But I know you would never pray that. <laughs> So I, I said, Lord, I, I, I really don't know. And, and I, I pleaded ignorance with her. And I said, give me some time to pray about this. And as I went to the Lord in prayer, he led me to this passage of Scripture. And I began to think about this. Even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And then I began to meditate on the Scriptures about how Christ forgave. What did he do to forgive uh, can I say that um, there are many people who struggle with this. The Bible uses several terms for it. Anger, wrath, malice, bitterness. Uh, there's, all, there's at least five words in one, one verse alone that describes the levels or the degrees of intensity of anger. So don't think that you're not angry simply because you're not exploding at the moment. 
There might be a slow simmer on the back burner or there might be an explosion on the front burner or there might be some degree in between, but I'll guarantee you in the Bible uh, terms, it is anger. Now, I've I've heard at least one person this week look at me and say, I'm angry. That's very rare because most people say, I'm hurt. I'm frustrated. I'm disappointed. We have a lot of euphemisms for anger that uh, we use instead of the word anger because we don't like the fact that I could possibly be angry. But I want to tell you that I have seen the damage of anger. I've seen it in my own life. When I was, uh, when I was a boy growing up, it's arguable, I guess, that I was abused. I know at times I was abused. Uh, my father was a good man in many ways, but when he lost his temper, he lost it. And I recall times of, of uh, beatings, of unconsciousness, of bleeding. And I grew up hating my father. And I remember as an eight-year-old boy, after coming out of the barn, after a particularly severe beating with the two-by-two board, and the blood was running down the back of my legs and pooling in my shoes... I came out and looked up at God and through bared teeth, I said, God, if you're such a God of love, why are you letting this happen to a little boy? And I didn't realize that that answer would be delayed for about 20 years. But as a young pastor, years later, I was counseling a man who had been abused as a boy. And it dawned on me with a suddenness and an excitement The scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that says, Blessed be the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all of our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them that are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. And I knew the reason. And can I say to you that God always has a reason. Nothing surprises God. God's in total control. God's orchestrating every event in our lives. But I, I, I came to the Lord. I, well, actually, at that point, I, 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 uh, at age 8, I, I still lived at home until age 16. But I ran away at age 16. And uh, that, that was a story in itself. I ended up in a, in a Christian school. A boarding school, no less, called Bob Jones Academy in Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, lost without Christ and determined not to become like the spiritual prudes around me. And I fought the Lord for a semester and a half. I did everything. Uh, in order, uh, I had a policy of not letting my studies get in the way of my education. You know what I mean? And I, I, I remember that the first semester I was not saved. And if you got 150 demerits, you were expelled. I had 147 with two weeks to go. My roommates for two weeks would not let me out of their sight. Because they knew if they let me out of their sight, I'd get in trouble. And so uh, I, somehow I made it through. And the second semester, I came to know the Lord. Now, I'm 17 years old and I have just... I trusted Christ as my Savior, and I want to tell you the grass was never greener, the sky was never bluer, my feet didn't touch the ground for two weeks. If I'd met the Antichrist, I'd have kissed him right on the mouth. (laughs) 
I was so excited. This was terrific. And I began to grow and grow and grow. I got more and more excited about the things of God. And then almost palpably, physically, I hit a ceiling. Whop! And when I hit that ceiling, I started to backslide. And I got convicted. And I start to grow and grow and grow. And whop, I'd hit that ceiling and I'd backslide. And this went on for eight years. And finally I said, Lord, what is it that is always blocking my growth and my closeness to you? And he revealed to me that it was my anger toward my father. And so after eight years of frustration and disappointment, I made that right. Can I say to you that there are some awful consequences to anger? The writer of Hebrews said, uh, Beware lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Can I say that one of the consequences of harboring anger is that you're troubled? That you never break through that ceiling? That you never experience the grace of God in all its glory and wonder? Can I also say to you that when you harbor anger, uh, not only are you troubled, but many be defiled? Many be defiled. And who gets defiled first? The people closest to you. The people you love the most. The people you spend the most time with. In fact, the Bible says, Go not with an angry man, lest thou learn his ways, and get this now, and get a snare to thy soul. Let me tell you uh, uh, something, folks. When, when we harbor anger, we don't just defile others. We snare them. We put a trap in front of them that they can never come to, uh, as, as close to Christ as He wants them to. Wow. But you know what? You also do the work of the devil himself. He is the accuser of the brethren. That word accuser, interestingly enough, is the word kategoros in Greek. It means category or categorize. And when you are doing the work of the devil, you are locking someone, someone into a perpetual state of condemnation and you are categorizing them as a sinner or as something. And you know what? That's no way to live. I, I think one of the most serious consequences of anger is how it impugns the very integrity of God. If God is sovereign, and He is, that means He's in control of everything. He's in control of everybody in my life. Well, if I get angry at the circumstances in my life or at the people in my life, who am I really angry at if I believe He's sovereign? If I don't believe He's sovereign, that's another problem. Or I don't trust Him. Joseph said to his brothers who mistreated him, sold him into slavery and, and, and suffered a, a, a two-year imprisonment as a result of it. Joseph said to his brothers, he said, as for you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Wow, what a viewpoint. What a worldview that is to realize that God can use the evil of people in my life to bring good into this world. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to save much people alive. 
And because he had been strategically positioned by the evil of man, God saved the world from starvation through Joseph. Who knows what God is trying to do through the circumstances of our life that we're so upset about and so angry about. Who, who knows what God is trying to do through the people in our lives. Now, I, I want you to notice that this says, as Christ forgave you, so also do you. Why do you think it says that? For this reason, Christ is the very basis of our Christianity. We, we even call Christ eons. That's an interesting word. It only appears three times in the New Testament. The first time it appears is in Acts chapter 11. The Bible says they were called Christians first in Antioch. To the Antiochans, the people who lived in Antioch, and in that whole region of the world, everybody's name ended with I-A-N. Because I-A-N meant, in their vernacular, the son of. So when they saw the Christians, and they were so much like Jesus Christ... They said, you know, they're so much alike, they must be the sons of Christ. And they were called Christians by the Armenians of that area. And we carry that name today. And you know why? Because quite frankly, as he is, the Bible says, so are we to be in this world. We're to be like him. We're to love as he loved. Love one another as Christ hath loved us. We're to be holy because he is holy. Be ye holy, even as he is holy. The Bible says we're even to suffer as He is. He's our, our, our example of suffering. We, our, he's our example of humility. He said, if I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, then ye ought also to wash one another's feet. And He's certainly our example of forgiveness, isn't He? Because it says right here, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Even as Christ forgave you. So also do ye. And so I said, Lord, I don't know what to tell this lady, but I hope you'll open the scriptures to me. And I want to share for just a few minutes what the Lord showed me. This is not an exhaustive treatise on the forgiveness of Christ. Nobody can exhaust that. But for a few minutes, I'd like to draw your attention to some scripture and help you to see how Christ forgave you and then to show you how we then as believers should forgive others in the same way Christ has forgiven us. How did He forgive us? Well, the first thing I want to say is that He forgave. Now, please understand this. He forgave by having a willingness to suffer for the sinfulness of others. I look across the page there in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. What this means, and you know, it's very helpful. Can y'all hear me okay? I'm not hearing myself so good. Am I on? Okay, you can hear me? All right. Um, sometimes it helps in understanding the scriptures to not only interpret, interpret it grammatically and contextually in the context, but also culturally. 
In this passage of Scripture, uh, the practice of that day was that if you went to jail or to prison, nobody had to wonder why you were there because there would be a list of the laws that you had broken called ordinances. And because they had no typewriters and they had no computers, of course, it was done in handwritten form. So nailed to the door of every prisoner's cell, there was a handwriting of ordinances against that prisoner. Every law he had broken. Now, when he finished his sentence, that document was taken off of the door, carried to the magistrate, who then put his signature on it over the seal of Rome and at the bottom of the paper wrote, Te Telestai, or paid in full, or it is finished. And then that prisoner took that document, rolled it up, carried it out. If anyone stopped him on the street and they said, hey, aren't you supposed to be in jail paying for your crimes? He could open that document. He could say it's paid in full. What this is saying, now look at it carefully because what, the, what Paul is saying in this passage of Scripture in verse 14, he blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Imagine a long hallway stretching all the way back into history past and all the way forward to eternity future. And imagine this hallway lined with the prison cells of every sinner who ever lived with every sin they had ever done listed on a document nailed to their door. Jesus began a journey at the very beginning of that hallway and he makes it all the way to the end of that hallway and he pauses outside the, the cell door of every sinner, rips off. The handwriting of ordinances against you. And he took it out of the way and he nailed it to the cross and he said, it is finished. Now here's what that means, ladies and gentlemen. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace is upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. He suffered for the iniquity of many. And that means that every sin that you as a sinner ever committed was one more hammer blow on the spikes that nailed him to the cross. You put him there. Your sin put him there. He died because of your sinfulness. Now please understand that we're not above him. Turn to John chapter 15 for a minute. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he's giving them marching orders and he's telling them this is what you can expect. In verse 18, it's pretty shocking, but he said, If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own, but because you're not of the world, but I've chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Don't be surprised, dear friend. If every religion, every ism, every wasm, and every spasm of religiosity is accepted and embraced by this world, accept Christianity. Christianity will never be accepted by the world. 
As long as you are in this world, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And if you're going into Christianity and to the Christian faith thinking, you know what? Everybody's going to love me. You are sadly mistaken. The most perfect Christian who ever lived was put on a cross by the world that hated him. Now look at verse 20. Remember the word that I said unto you. The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. Notice the words. The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they persecuted me. Now here's the irony of the Christian faith. And I hope that everyone in this room has experienced the thrill of coming to an old-fashioned, old rugged cross and looking up at the cross and saying, Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. Thank you for suffering for my sinfulness. But you know what the problem is? The irony of it is, as we turn away from the cross, we mutter under our breath, but don't ever ask me to do it. Thank you for suffering for me. Thank you for suffering because of my sinfulness. But don't ask me to suffer for the sinfulness of someone else. That's not fair. I wonder how that resonates in the ears of the Savior who's hanging on the cross for your sins. And maybe that arrogance and that pride that you can actually look into the face of the Savior who died for your sinfulness while refusing to suffer for someone else's sinfulness. Maybe that arrogance is the greatest sin of all. You are not greater than your Lord. It is, this is our lot in life, my friend. We are called, according to 1 Peter chapter 2, to suffer, even as he suffered. Do you really think that you're going to go through life without anybody ever hurting you? Without anybody ever wounding you? I mean, do you think that if Jesus couldn't even make it 33 years without that, with all of his holiness and his perfection, do you think that you're going to go through this world and be perfectly loved by everyone? It's not going to happen. But you see, this is the beginning place of Christ-like forgiveness. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And what was the mind that was in Christ Jesus? He was willing to suffer for the sinfulness of other people. And can I make this observation? There is no suffering that any human has ever endured that was not traceable ultimately to the sinfulness of another human being. Even if you have to go all the way back to the garden, it started with Adam, didn't it? And Eve. And we've suffered the consequences ever since. Now let me ask you right here before we move on. Do you have that Christ-like spirit? Or do you need to repent of an arrogance and a pride and a sin against the very character of Christ himself? So the first step of Christ-like forgiveness or forgiving as Christ forgave is a willingness to suffer for the sinfulness of others. Now I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. And Jesus again is speaking. And, I, and, and by the way, when Jesus speaks, my friend... He said, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. And we can learn from Matthew. We can learn from Christ. Uh, 
and the words that he said. And he, he says this about enemies in verse 43. <clears throat> Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. How do we forgive as Christ forgave? Well, Luke, uh, the Gospel of Luke in chapter 23 records a prayer that is probably one of the most famous prayers in all of history. Jesus is hanging on the cross and he's looking into the eyes of his malefactors, the very people who put him there, eyes filled with hatred, eyes filled with demonic envy and murderous intent, eyes that are rejoicing in his suffering, eyes that are, are applauding the fact that their goals have been accomplished by putting this man on the cross. He looks into those eyes and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. In other words, to forgive as Christ forgave means to pray for your enemies as Christ prayed for his enemies. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And let me draw your attention to the fact that when he prayed that prayer, he was appealing to God on their behalf. Now, why would he do that? Why does God, watch now, why does God say to you, you pray for your enemies? In that crowd that day, there, there was a Pharisee, probably several, with their phylacteries, their robes, their titles, their dignity, their respect, because there's a, they're the leaders of the synagogue and they're the leaders of the civic government. I mean, these are the man, men that everyone looks to with admiration. And standing next to a Pharisee is a man from the street, a no name, a nobody. Do you think that he's going to be motivated to pray for that Pharisee? He sees nothing but good in him. Doesn't it irritate you when people see nothing but good in your enemy? Don't, don't you sometimes just want to strip off those Pharisaic robes and say, here's the real guy. But Jesus knew. Because you see, to Jesus, they were whited sepulchers. But he looked past the whited sepulcher and he saw on the inside they were full of dead men's bones. And that means that Jesus knew the real heart of that man, of that Pharisee. He knew the depth of his depravity. He knew the murderous intent of his heart. He knew the sinfulness of his soul. And because he, listen to me, my friend, because he was privy to information that nobody else was privy to, he felt burdened to pray because nobody else would. God has given you inside information about your enemy. Nobody else knows about your enemy like you know your enemy. Nobody else knows the, the depth of their depravity like you know. You have been the recipient of their vituperation. You have felt the lash of their anger. You have had to stew in the juices of their own sin. God has entrusted you with information that no one else has. And then, listen to me, God places you 
strategically between your enemy and the devil himself, between your enemy and even hell itself. I wonder how many people have died and gone to hell without a prayer ever being said for them because somebody said, I'm not praying for my enemy. But instead of ministering grace, you minister disgrace. And instead of serving Christ, you serve the devil. And you became his agent as the accuser of the brethren. And in your spirit and with your lips, you accuse, accuse, accuse. But never pray. How can we say that we are Christians and not even pray for our enemy? No, when Jesus said, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. He appealed to God on their behalf because God had given him a divine ministry, a sovereign mandate, a holy marching order that nobody else could fulfill. And he has called upon you, my friend, to pray for your enemy and you especially to pray for your enemy. But when he prayed that prayer, he also focused on their weakness instead of their wickedness. They know not what they do. Now, isn't that, isn't that something that Christ, he's not ignoring their sinfulness. He's not saying that ignorance is innocence, but here's what he is saying. He's saying ignorance is a reason for mercy. If you could go back a few years to a, the most powerful man in the world, sitting in the Oval Office, and you can say to him, why would you risk everything for a 15-minute dalliance with a fickle intern? If you recall that, if you were able to ask him that, you would make one grave mistake because you are presupposing logic. Sin is not about logic. Sin has never been about logic. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And especially who can know it when we have given into it and given it its head and given it rain and let it do whatever it wants to do. Nobody understands that. And I, I said this weekend, the problem with psychology is they presume to know why. How arrogant to presume to know what the Bible says you can't know. I don't know why you do what you do. And you know what? That's not so important. And you don't need to know why you do what you do. We don't need to be controlled by the why questions. We need to be controlled by the what questions. What does the Bible say? What is my sin? What has God done for me to overcome this? Uh, what is my responsibility? What, what, what? Now you got a handle. Now you can do something. But if we were able to go back in time and we were able to freeze frame your enemy in mid-motion while they inflicted their pain of torment upon your soul and upon your spirit, if we could freeze frame them as their hand of anger is lifted and we could say, stop, why are you doing this? They don't know. They're ignorant. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Now, please understand this. Peter, two weeks after the crucifixion, Peter, who cowed and cowered in the presence of a maid around the fireplace, you remember Peter? 
Two weeks later now, he's standing in front of the very people who put Jesus on the cross and he is no longer a coward. He is no longer uh, hesitating. I, I mean, w w without hesitation, without equivocation, he looks at the people who did this in Acts chapter 3 and here's what he said. You killed the prince of life. You delivered the Holy One and the just. But then he said this. But I what, meaning I perceive. I understand. He says, but I what, that through ignorance you did it, as did also your rulers. There was a serial killer in the days of the New Testament who went from town to town and hailed men and women into prison and saw that they died for their faith, in some cases even holding the coats of those who killed them. We don't know how many he's responsible for killing, but I know this, he thought he was doing God's service. And then one day on the road to do just that, to hail men and women into prison, he was stopped suddenly by the blinding light of the presence of God on the road to Damascus. And he came to know Christ. And now he was redeemed and forgiven for his sins. And he said this in 1 Timothy chapter 1 about his own testimony. I was before injurious. That means I caused injury to people. I hurt people. I caused pain. I was injurious and I was a blasphemer. But listen to this. This is the testimony of Saul now changed into Paul, the apostle, who wrote half of the New Testament. A murderer whose writings you read all the time. I obtained mercy, he said. I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Wow. Don't you think that if the Lord Jesus would, would pray from the cross that God would forgive his enemies even in their ignorance, don't you think if Peter realized it was ignorance that made him to do it, don't you think that if the great apostle Paul himself recognized that he obtained mercy because he sinned in ignorance and unbelief, don't you think that your enemy deserves the same? Amen. And if you think not, if you think not, my friend, and I wonder if you don't think you're greater than your Lord. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And when he prayed that prayer, he appealed to God on their behalf. He focused on their weakness instead of their wickedness. But you know what else in that prayer I see? The heart of the Lord Jesus, the Spirit of Christ, because as he hung on the cross, he desired restoration, not retaliation. I mean, he said himself, did he not? All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. All power. Wow. Doesn't Colossians say that he's the creator of heaven and earth? Doesn't, he say, doesn't the Bible say he is the very image of God and that he is God in the flesh? This is God hanging on that tree. He has all power. And if any man, my friend, was ever strategically positioned to get revenge with impunity, he cannot be punished for it. It was Jesus. In fact, 
the songwriter tried to capture this when he said, he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and me. But the songwriter, my friend, is wrong because the Bible says he could have called 12 legions of angels. And I will remind you that 12 legions of angels is 72,000 angels. And I would also remind you that one angel in one day with one sword in the Old Testament slew 185,000 Assyrians. One angel. 72,000 angels. Can you imagine being in the place of Jesus? I mean, you want your pound of flesh? You want your revenge? You want to get your, 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 your uh, you want to express your vengeance on, all right, call the angels. And now the sun is blacked out by this cloud of angels who swooped down on that crowd with flaming swords and the blood would flow shoulder high to a horse and you could enjoy your revenge. But it wasn't what he wanted, was it? You see, the Spirit of Christ said, I don't want revenge. I don't want retaliation. Father, forgive them. The heartbeat of Christ was not to get even. The heartbeat of Christ was to get them saved and get them forgiven. And so he prayed, Father, forgive them. Now let me ask you something, my friend. As you hang on the cross of somebody else's making, as you feel the spikes in your hand from somebody else's hammer blows, as you realize that somebody put you there and now you look at them and now God says you can have anything you want for them. You can do anything you want to them. What would you do? If you have the Spirit of Christ... If you have the mind of Christ, if you forgive as Christ forgave, you want nothing but the best. So what do you want? So how did Christ forgive? Christ forgave, first of all, by a willingness to suffer for the sinfulness of others. Christ forgave, secondly, by praying for his enemies. Thirdly, Christ forgave by looking with the eyes of faith into the future and seeing God's higher purpose in bringing him pain. So when this says, forgive as Christ hath forgiven you, it means that you need to trust God with your suffering that he who doeth all things well will bring glory to his name through it. Now God's plan always is consecration. That's his ultimate goal. You know, you read the the story of Jesus in Matthew 26 about when he went to Gethsemane, he prayed three times. Do you understand that this was a struggle for Jesus? Hebrews chapter 5 says he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. That's about the Lord. Jesus learned obedience by the things which he suffered. I mean, here's Jesus, and, and he says, uh, Father, uh, in fact, in Mark, his first prayer goes like this. Father, take this cup away from me. It's an, an imperative. Nevertheless, not thy will, but thine, my will, but thine be done. There was a very 
a reluctant concession, a grudging concession. If I have to do it, I'll do it. That's the first prayer. The second prayer, he prayed again. He says, Father, if it be possible, take this cup away from me. Now, he goes from this grudging concession to a reluctant conformity. But there's still reluctance. He still hasn't surrendered. He still hasn't totally yielded his will. He's struggling with this. He's learning obedience by the things which he suffered. And do you know he suffered so much? He sweat as it were, great drops of blood. Do you know he suffered so much that an angel had to be dispatched from heaven just to keep him from dying? Do you know he suffered so much that he said, my soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death? But the third time he prayed, something happened. Because immediately after that prayer, he came upon his disciples. And he said, sleep on now. You can hear the relief in his voice. Sleep on now. The hour is at hand. You know what happened? He went from concession to conformity to absolute consecration. And that's God's plan for all of our suffering. Yeah, we might have to go through phases like Jesus went through. We, might, we may even kick against the pricks. We may even be mad at God. But if we are faithful to Him as He is faithful to us and we are open to His heart as He is open to our needs, we know we've got to come to the place where we're willing to say, not my will, but thine be done. And my friend, drinking the cup of suffering may be God's will for you. And so God used suffering in his life. The God of all grace who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after ye have suffered a while. Make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. That's God's plan. And why does God, why, why does God do all this? Because God has a purpose. Jesus knew, watch now, for the joy that was set before him. Now, he's looking into the future, and he's saying, you know what? I see the purpose of God. I see joy, because there is joy unspeakable and full of glory and walking in his will. At thy right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. In thy presence is fullness of joy. I see the joy. I see the resurrection. I see the salvation of millions, including a church full of people in Austin, Texas. And for the joy that was set before him, for the joy, he endured the cross, despised the shame, and aren't you glad he did? He looked into the future with the eyes of faith and he saw God's higher purpose in assigning him this pain. Uh, can I say to you that that's the way God wants us to see our future? A little boy went into a, a pet store to buy a puppy. He walked up to a cardboard box full of a fresh litter of puppies. And they're all wiggling and squirming. They're just a couple of weeks old. And they're, they're just crawling all over each other, trying to lick his hand. All of them but one. This one puppy down in the corner is cowering and trembling and whimpering. And all the other puppies are stepping on the back of that puppy to lick the little boy's hand. And the owner of the store comes up and says, son, he says, you want to buy a dog? And he said, yes, sir. He said, have you picked one out? And he said, I have. He said, which one you want? And he pointed to that little puppy in the corner of that box. I want that one. 
the owner said, son, let me show you something. And he reached into that box and he took that puppy and he took his soft, warm, furry belly and he laid it in one hand. And with the other hand, he grabbed his hind leg and he pulled it out. And he showed that boy how that leg was twisted and contorted and crippled. He said, this puppy will never be able to run with you in the field. Never be able to wrestle with you on the living room floor. Why don't you choose one of these other puppies? At that point, the little boy reached down and grabbed his pant leg and pulled it up to show a brace from his ankle to his thigh. He said, that's okay, sir. I'm a cripple too. And that puppy needs a cripple to understand him. You're looking at a cripple. I'm looking at a room full. And we're all looking at a world full. And you know what the world out there wants to know? They don't want a a triathlete coming to their bedside when they're in a body cast and saying, I know just how you feel. They want someone who has been touched in the hollow of their thigh by God himself, who has limped on that leg all their life, who understands suffering and now ministers not from the head, not from the heart, from the life. And they have a life message and a life ministry because they can say, let me tell you how God has helped me and what he can do for you. We're cripples. The reason God cripples us is not because he doesn't love us. I was in the mall with my wife years ago in Grand Rapids, Michigan at Christmas time. There had been a raft of kidnappings of children around that mall over about a two-month period, about eight children. And uh, parents were scared to death and nervous. So we kept saying, Jonathan, he was about five years old. We said, kept saying, son, stay close, stay close. But he wandered, he wandered. You know how kids are at Christmas in a mall? I mean, you got, you got sights and sounds and smells and everything. So finally, I got tired of that. And I said to Sandra, come with me. And we hid behind uh, uh, one of those huge pillars that support the atrium of the mall. And we let Jonathan go. Well, he thought he'd die and go into hog heaven. He's just walking around, looking at the carolers, smelling the Christmas cookies, looking at Santa Claus. But then he, he stood stock still, and you could see the fear in his eyes. And he started looking around. And Sandra started to move, and I said, not yet. He started walking around looking for us. I said, not yet. And then finally he stood stock still and his little lip began to tremble and big tears welled up in his eyes. I said, now. (laughs) And I want to tell you, when we stepped out from behind that pillar, there ain't no linebacker for the Dallas Cowboys ever had half the power as that boy's legs. He hit me like a tsunami. He crawled up my front and held on to my neck. And for the rest of the day, I didn't have to wonder where he was. He had one, uh, one foot in my shoe and one hand in my pocket. And I'm saying, give me some space. But now listen to me. I dare you. I double dog dare you to tell me I did not love my son when I hid my face from him. And I dare you to tell me that your heavenly father, 
when he hid his face for a millisecond of eternity while you went through a little suffering did not love you. Probably loved you more then than ever if it's possible for God's love to, uh, to vary at all. But you see, the truth of the matter is whom the Lord loveth sometimes he even chastens. So what is God doing? What God is doing is bringing us to a place that in our crippled state, we experience His healing grace. We can say to others, let me tell you what God has done. But it all depends on one thing, forgiving as Christ forgave. I close with this story, a story about another little boy. There is a stretch of road in Chicago called the Magnificent Mile. It's Michigan Avenue. It extends from downtown out about 12 blocks and lining Michigan Avenue are some of the most expensive stores in America. It's called the Rodeo Drive of the Midwest. I went into a toy store at one point looking for a toy for my son and I saw a toy car for children for $25,000. I saw a hand-carved, out of one huge block of mahogany, a hand-carved rocking horse for $40,000. What, doesn't your child have one? <laughs> well, apparently a mother went into one, a furniture store like that with her son. And she wasn't paying attention and he wandered off while she was looking at these high-priced items. And uh, her son came up, and he has a vase stuck on his wrist. A vase, not a vase. <laughs> it's that kind of store. It's a $15,000 price tag vase. And he's swinging his arm like this. And his mother says, son, what are you doing? He said, mama, it won't come off. I tried. It's stuck. She pulled on it, and it wouldn't come off. They called the manager who about fainted, poured water on his wrist and it wouldn't come off, poured oil on his wrist, put soap on his wrist. Finally, they made the only decision they could make. They took a hammer and they broke it into a thousand pieces. And when they did, they found that little boy's hand balled in a fist. And his mama said, son, has your hand always been balled in a fist? He said, yeah, mama. And she said, why? And he opened his hand. To show her a brand new shiny copper penny. I didn't want to lose my penny. I know a lot of Christians who do that. They wrap their hand around some cheap, tawdry memory. And they say, it's my right to have this penny. And I will go to the grave holding on to this penny. And I don't care how much damage I cause. I don't care who I hurt. I don't care that I insult my Savior. I have my right. Do you really? Do you really? Because if you're going to forgive as Christ forgave you, my friend, you don't have any greater rights than He because a servant is not greater than his Lord. Now, that's what I told that girl that day. She said, Brother Benny, I know I need to forgive, but how do I forgive? What I told you, I told her. And I'm glad to tell you that she did forgive. And you know what she did? She let her penny go. She gave it up.
You say, how do you do that? The Bible says, let. Interesting word. Let. Let all bitterness and wrath be put away from you. How do you do that? Let me tell you how. You open your hand. You open your hand and you invite the sweet dove of the Holy Spirit to come down and take that penny. But he can't take it when your hand is closed. You have to surrender it. You have to let it go. You have to give it up. But when you give it up, my friend, I want to tell you that is a sweet surrender. I walked in a bicycle shop in Anderson, Indiana as a pastor and sat down with my dad for the first time. He turned off the alarm system and we had a talk. And before I left that day, I forgave him. And we had tears in that room that day. But I'll tell you this, I walked out of that store and guess what? Everything's all right in my father's house. Everything's all right. And you know why? Because I let it go. And that's what God wants you to do.